All right, while the kids are making their way on out of the sanctuary, we're going to be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So 1 Corinthians and the third chapter, if you want to make your way that direction. As we begin this study through the letter to the Corinthians that Paul writes, let me remind you that he planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. So we were in this spot in Scripture about uh, 18 months ago. And as we looked at this, the Apostle Paul plants the church here in Corinth, this place that was full of all kinds of uh, Greek and Roman culture, and it had come together here in this area. And what we find is just a short few years later, the Apostle Paul is now getting letters. He's getting word that things were not going well at the church in Corinth. There were things uh, permeating, in particular, Greek culture. And what we know about Greek culture, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is that they loved philosophy. In fact, the word philosophy is actually a compound Greek word of phileo, sophia, phileo to love, and sophia, wisdom. And so they literally loved wisdom. This is how they felt about wisdom. And to desire wisdom and to seek after wisdom isn't necessarily bad in and of itself. It's a question, though, of what kind of wisdom do you seek? And so the question really for these people that Paul is now writing this letter to here in Corinth is, you're seeking after the wisdom of man as opposed to the wisdom of God, that there's a contrast between the two, that the two are actually diametrically opposed to one another, that for the wisdom of man, they're not going to understand the things of God, and, and the wisdom of God's going to seem like foolishness to the world. So what, as Paul began the letter here in verse 23 of the first chapter, I'll pick up in verse 22, he says, the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so for these parties that are making up this church, what he's saying is to the Jews, they're going to hear this wisdom of Jesus as the Christ, and it's going to be a stumbling block. The Jews could never get their mind wrapped around their Messiah would actually suffer. In fact, they spiritualized and just flatly ignored the text from the Old Testament that said the Messiah would suffer, that he would give his life for those that he loved. What they desired was a ruler to come in and reign and to kick the stinking Romans out. We want our country back. And so they were praying for this kind of leader to rise up. So they, they stumbled over Jesus as the Messiah. Now, for the Greeks, this whole thing sounded like foolishness. They had all of their fancy philosophies, and they could not wrap their mind around the God of the universe, the creator of all things, would actually give his life for his creation. I mean, can you imagine him humbling himself to the point of death on a cross? This, this doesn't make sense. This sounds like complete and utter foolishness. But what Paul says here in the first chapter is, to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the power of God here right before us. And so it's a stumbling block for the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks, but to us as Christians, it's the power of God. And as we made our way to chapter 2, Paul continued and he said, These things in verse 13, we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But verse 15, he who also 
is spiritual, judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So here's the struggle. It's, it's one of the spiritual man versus the natural man. It, and really the struggle, what it really gets down to for the natural man is it's one of humility and obedience. We do not desire in our flesh to be humble. We do not desire to obey. The flesh wars against the spirit. And this we see all the way back at the very beginning. That as God created mankind, I'll take a little detour and then I'll get back on, onto the on-ramp, I promise. But as God created us as human beings, he made us three in one in his image, body, soul, and spirit. And so as he made us body, uh, it, what that means in the Greek, it's a soma. It's this flesh that, that carries us around. This is the medium that we communicate with one another. We see, we touch, we taste. But then he also gave us a soul, a psyche. This is where consciousness resides, where we can make decisions, where we love and we hate and we, we have all these different effects, but it's, it's directed, namely, by our flesh. Why? Because at the fall, uh, the spirit of Adam and Eve actually died. That prior to that, what I believe, and this has been taught uh, by other people, and, and this is the camp that I fall in, that as they were created a uh, body and soul and spirit, Adam and Eve, that the spirit was actually on the outside. That as they walked in the cool of the day with God, they were able to communicate and have this beautiful communion with God because they were communicating spirit to spirit. This is what Jesus said. It's in spirit that we actually worship and spend time with the Lord. And so on the outside of them would have been their spirit. And so as they sin, as they choose a new master, as they decide not to humble themselves and obey to the word of God, what happened is their spirit died. It went inside. And what did they realize? They were naked. Because for the first time, the soma was uncovered. And at that point in time, every one that would follow after Adam and Eve, after their seed, would all be spiritually stillborn. The EKG was he for each and every one of us. I did that just to see if you guys were awake. I can continue to do that if I need to. But what we see is we were all spiritually dead. There was a disconnect. This is why when Jesus is speaking in Nicodemus, when we looked at John chapter 3, he says you must be born again. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The only way to understand spiritual things is through the Spirit, but we have to be born again. Our spirit has died, and we know that this has been disconnected, which is why for thousands and thousands of years, man has tried to reconnect, relink with God. The word religion means to relink. We're desiring to relink with Him because we know we're broken inside. And so this is the issue at hand, that for the psyche, there is a battle for the one who now has received Jesus. You see, before the natural man, there was no battle. It was whatever the flesh wants, the flesh gets. And so the psyche can only make the decision based upon the needs of my flesh. But when I receive Jesus, and he literally breathes his spirit, his pneuma, or the word in the Hebrew is ruach, comes into me, and I have a, a reborn spirit, now I have a decision to make. Now there's a battle. The spirit wars against the flesh. Which one am I going to listen to? Which one am I going to adhere to? And so we now have this struggle in mind. This is the battle that Paul is writing about. It's a battle in the spirit realm. Which one are you going to listen to? And so Paul is going to address the carnal Christian today. 
And so for the carnal Christian, the issue is they believe in Jesus, but they are directed by their flesh. And literally, their life looks like a carnival, hence the title of the message today. I mean, it's a circus, baby. I mean, it, it's, it's this way, it's that way. We're blown by every wind that comes our direction because we're actually being driven and directed by our flesh, not by the Spirit. So Paul begins here in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, And I, brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And so this carnality had infiltrated the church. The word in the Greek is sarkonos, and it literally means fleshly. They were being fleshly, operating, being directed out of their flesh. And what Paul is saying to them is, you all are a bunch of babies. You're acting like spiritual infants. And he didn't write this because he had just led them to the Lord last week. I mean, this is years down the road. Paul's now writing back to this group that should have matured, but something had stunted their growth. Something had stopped their development. And what it was, was their allowance of the philosophies of the world to infiltrate, to permeate into their church. And and as a result, they would show up on Sunday mornings, and they would worship, and they would pray, and they would praise, yay, Jesus! And then come Monday, it would all go back the other direction, because they were directed by their flesh. The wheels would fall off almost Immediately, they might hold out for a little bit on Monday, but then come Tuesday, the world is pulling at me. And this is who Paul is writing to. And what he says is in verse two, I desire to feed you something more healthy. I desire to give you meat, but you're not able to receive it. You can't receive the meat of the word. You choke. We know from feeding little babies as you feed them the the mushy stuff and you want to give them a little bit more and a little bit more. But as parents, we're afraid they're going to choke. This is what Paul is saying to these Corinthians. If I gave you the meat of the word, you would choke on it. Hebrews chapter 5, when we were there a few weeks back, this is what the writer of the Hebrews had to communicate. In verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So what is the difference between milk and solid food? I mean, we all love a good cold glass of milk, right? One of the best things I read this week was, was here's the difference. Uh, for those who consume milk, uh, it is Jesus has saved me. Praise the Lord. It's, it's Bible school downstairs. It's Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And praise the Lord for that message. But what the meat is, is Jesus, yes, he has saved me, but he is saving me. He is present and accounted for in the middle of my situation. Yes, he has saved me for all of eternity. Thank you, Lord, for that. But I need a savior in the middle of this mess right now. I need somebody here dealing with my issues right now. And that is a game changer. 
when we begin to consume the meat of his word, I'm going to go there and dig in and see how he is saving me in my current spot that I'm in. Now the question is, how do we make that transition? How do we grow up from just being consumers of milk only to being able to consume the meat of the word? And the only way is through his spirit. We must have a Holy Spirit transformation where God literally brings the words of the page off for us to be able to see it. And we can cry out to him and say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that your kingdom can reside right here, right now in my situation, just as it does in heaven. What Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 is this. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How do we have dominance over the flesh? It's through walking in the Spirit. The the old adage is, uh, the dog you feed is the dog that's going to win. And so for us, we have to look at which dog are we feeding. We've got our flesh that cries out. I mean, this thing is loud. And then we have our spirit. What things am I inputting? I shouldn't be surprised if I act in my flesh if all my input continually is all with the flesh. It shouldn't come as a shock. Yet if I want to walk by the spirit, I must intake spiritual things. I must consume his word. I let praise and worship infiltrate my house Sorry, guns and roses. You're out. Out, Axel. But I begin to consume more and more spiritual things, and then we walk by the flesh. And then, or walk by the spirit. Don't do the walk by the flesh part. Well, we all have that down. (laughs) Then I walk by the spirit, and the flesh is dominated. The lust of the flesh is not fulfilled. We continue in verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Verse 7, so then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so walking in the flesh, it leads to envy, it leads to strife, it leads to all kinds of division. And these people are divided over, who's your favorite Bible teacher? I mean, of all things to be divided up about, it's we like Paul, we like Apollos, and now they've formed these factions and they won't talk to one another and and they won't interact with each other all because of who's your favorite Bible teacher. Mark chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples. And as they're walking along, he's approached by uh, John, soon to be John the Apostle, but at this point in time, he's one of the sons of thunder, he and his brother James. And John, verse 38 of Mark 9, answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. John's walking along, he's like, Teacher, we see a problem. There's someone casting out demons in your name, so we told him to cut it out. You don't do things the way we do it. You just stop that and knock it off. Jesus responds in verse 39 and says, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. 
For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. See, John's got a fantastic idea. How about we create the first ever denomination? Here's a plan, Lord. They don't do things the way we do, so we'll go over here and we'll do it like this and we'll cast them off. We'll tell them to to cut it out. They don't act like us. But all that does is create divisiveness. Suspicion begins to creep into our mind. Now, all of you guys are super holy, so you've never had this kind of response. But to people that aren't as holy as us, uh, you'll hear, well, they don't do things the way we do it. Did you see what those Baptists were doing? And how about the Methodists? And that weird church on the edge of town, they're non-denominational. You can't trust them. Here's the thing. It really just shows our own insecurity. That's really the issue at, at play. It's our own insecurities that want to doubt and have suspicion. And what Jesus says is, look, if they're not against us, they're for us. If they're doing things, maybe it looks different. Maybe it sounds different. And, and the reality for each of us is, We all have a way that we learn, a way that we worship differently, something that God is feeding us with in that particular season of life that we're in, and it doesn't make other people wrong or bad. If you like robes and liturgy, there's a place for you. If you like hymns, there's a place for you. If you like and learn in a different way, there is going to be a place for you. This is what God used to change my life. So this is what I present to you all. And it's important to note that because if we're not careful, we can think like the old adage goes that every old crow thinks hers is the blackest, right? Everybody that's got a way of doing things thinks their way is better than everybody else's. But it doesn't make us better. What it makes is us necessary, you see. There are denominations because they're necessary. We're different because it's necessary. We need to stop infighting with one another and allowing insecurity to take root and know that they're leading people to Jesus. Praise the Lord for it. Now, in Mark chapter 4, what Jesus shares with the people gathered around him there is the parable of the sower. And what he communicates with them is the, the word is the seed. That's what really is going forth. And what happens is then the Holy Spirit waters the seed as it falls on the ground. And God actually causes this miracle of germination to take place. How it happens, I can't possibly explain it, and yet it does. And so we've got this wonderful uh, parable that Jesus shares to, to say, look, the seed is cast. Our job is to just cast the seed out there, pray the Holy Spirit provides water, and then to God be the increase. As we continue in verse 9, Paul says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And so what he says is, look, we're just workers. Apollos and I, we are fellow workers together. And the reality is there are many different people and different approaches. There's even different approaches you find in the Old Testament. For example, Ezra. He brings the nation of Israel, along with Zerubbabel, out of Babylon. They've been sent away to captivity for 70 years. They've been cast off because of idolatry. God told them, look, I don't want you to marry uh, pagan women from the nations all around you. I don't want you to give your daughters in marriage because what we know about uh, then is the same uh, today that a happy wife makes a happy life. 
And so, yeah, she brings a few idols over. Look, she's not complaining. I feel pretty good about it. So just let it happen. God knew this about us as men, that we would allow this into our house. And so what he says is don't even bring it in. The nation of Israel falls completely apart. They're cast off, sent away to Babylon into captivity for 70 years. Now Ezra is coming back with the first group to come out of Babylon and they rebuild the temple. And by the time you get to chapter 9, what Ezra gets word of is they're giving themselves away in marriage to pagan women. They're giving their daughters away in marriage and he is heartbroken. I mean, they spent seven decades in Babylon because of this very sin. And so Ezra, he's so upset, he actually grabs a hold of his own beard and he pulls the hair out of his beard. He's crying out to the Lord. I mean, that's some kind of upset. His heart is broken. Now, if you fast forward a few years later, you've got Nehemiah. Nehemiah, different leader, different approach. He comes uh, from the area of Babylon. He's going to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. He's heartbroken over the walls being uh, broken down. So he comes at the king's behest. He goes there. He rebuilds the walls in record time as a tremendous leader. And as he's got the walls finally rebuilt, by the time you get to Nehemiah chapter 13, he gets word uh, like Ezra did, that guess what? They're giving their daughters away in marriage and they're marrying pagan women. Now, Nehemiah in verse 25, he's got a different approach to this same sin than Ezra did. He says, so I contended with them and I cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. So Nehemiah's ministry with the same sin, Ezra pulls out his own hair. Nehemiah goes to these dudes and he starts pulling their hair out. He's smacking them upside the head. And by the way, um, there are times where we have to be both. Because the question is, who had the better ministry, right? Who handled things correctly? Was it Ezra? Was it Nehemiah? And I would say yes to that. That Ezra's heart was broken for the people. He, he pulled it himself. And there are times where we feel that way for other people, right? And there are other times where we have to have a different approach, a, a Nehemiah ministry, one where we literally smack somebody upside the head and pluck their beard out. Now, for me personally, I prefer a Nehemiah ministry. I'm happy to smack you upside the head and pull your hair out. Because if you haven't noticed, I don't have a lot of beard hair, and the, this up on top is getting pretty thin. I don't have a lot more to pull out. So, But the truth is that in different seasons, we have to be uh, different and handle situations differently. But the real heart of the issue was this sin problem that they needed to repent of. So for Ezra and Nehemiah, they're both encouraging repentance. Cut it out. Stop this thing from taking hold because here's the reality. You're God's field. You are God's building. This is what Paul is saying in verse 9. And for the field to receive seed, what you know as we have been you know, born and raised in this agricultural area, is that for the field to receive seed, it must first be cultivated. It must be cultivated. One last place in the Old Testament to go. Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk is actually before the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so he's now looking into Jerusalem and he is crying out for this same sin issue that Ezra and Nehemiah are dealing with. He's looking at this nation that is just falling apart at the scenes. And as he looks at it, he's crying out to the Lord. He's saying, would you please deal with the sin of the people? Father, you've got to do something. You need to act 
now for what I see taking place. And so God says, uh, Habakkuk, I'm going to do a work in your day that you wouldn't believe it if I told you. That's pretty awesome. Go ahead and lay it on me, Lord. And in verse 6, he says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and a hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwellings that are not theirs. Verse 7 begins by saying, they are terrible and dreadful. And immediately Habakkuk's like, the Chaldeans, they're way worse than us. I told you, you wouldn't believe me, Habakkuk. You see the The truth here is sometimes God has to let the Babylonians come into our life. He has to allow Nebuchadnezzar to come in and overturn the field. That they weren't going to change. They weren't going to get it right without God allowing their field to be overturned. And this preaches, by the way, way easier than it actually lives because none of us want to be cultivated. None of us. We've we've built all kinds of houses and things and places and strongholds and we're like, yeah, look, how good I've done, Lord. And then he comes in and he cultivates it. But the only way for the seed to take root, the only way for us to receive his word is to have soil that's willing to receive. What Jesus says in John chapter 2, verse 19, is you tear this temple down and in three days I'm going to build it up. What he was talking about was the field, the building being knocked down in their life. The building being overturned. They had worshipped the temple. And what Jesus is making it clear is that he was the temple. The place of worship to reside was actually in him. This is where his promise can actually take root and can actually germinate. And so there are times in our life where God has to overturn the things that we don't want him to overturn. Verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me, As a wise and master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For verse 11, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see, uh, this Christianity that we have given our lives to, um, this isn't built on rules and regulations and principles. It's built on a person. The person of Christ. There's a big difference. We love rules and regulations because we want to check a box. But but Jesus is and was and continues to be a person that this all this faith is built upon. He is the foundation. In Matthew chapter 16, he's standing at Caesarea Philippi. And I put a picture of Caesarea Philippi up there on the screen for you so you could get a visual. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, but he asks them a question. He begins by saying, who do men say that I am? And some of them respond, uh, uh, you've been called Jeremiah, or perhaps you're, you've been called Elijah, the prophet returned. But then Jesus turns the tables and he asks a question that every single one of us in this room have to answer. It's not a question that your parents could answer for you or your kids. You have to answer for yourself. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers in verse 16, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He says, blessed are you, 
Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. So then who did? The Father in heaven. Through the Spirit, Peter was able to see this truth, this foundational truth. Now this verse has been grabbed a hold of and said, see, God promised he was going to build his church on Peter. That's not actually what Jesus said. He said, blessed are you, you are Peter. The word is uh, Petros. It means little pebble. You're a little bitty pebble, Peter. That's you. But upon this rock, this Petra, and he no doubt probably pointed to the rock formation directly behind him that you see on the screen. Upon this rock, I will build my church. What is the rock? It is the confession of Peter. That Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And everything that we study, we learn, every bit of our foundation of who we are as Christians is based upon that confession. It's not a series of ideals. It is based upon the rock, the person who is the Christ. Now we continue in verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, capital D, note that, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And so this is the foundation. This is what everything is built upon. And as we then add things to the foundation, which is built upon Jesus as the Christ, we bring along our stone and our precious jewels and a little bit of wood and hay and some straw. And I build my life upon this. What we're told here, what Paul says is there will come a day, that being the day we stand before the Lord. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, as John is giving a description of Jesus, he says he has eyes of fire. He is going to look upon us on that capital D day and the things that are wood and hay and stubble, they're going to evaporate. They're going to be burned up. And the things that were precious jewels and stone that have been built upon him, those things are going to test. Those things are going to stand the test. It's the things that glorify him, not us, that actually remain. Verse 15 says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so for all who believe on him will be saved. And yet all the things that I tried to build on that foundation that were my own self-indulgence, my own self-promotion, which I love to do a lot, uh, all those things are going up in smoke. It's not going to stand. It's going to be burned. And yet as we appear before him at the Bema seat, is what Paul calls it, he is promised to give us a reward. Now the Apostle Paul uses this phraseology of a Bema seat to recall these Corinthians in particular uh, to what they loved, which were Olympic-style games. Paul loved the Olympic games. He loved races. He loved sports, which is how at my house I justify watching uh, March Madness for like four days straight. I'm like, look, the Apostle Paul loves sports. Uh, now look at me, I'm studying for Sunday, honey. This is why I have to watch the March Madnesses. And so uh, she's yet to buy it, but I'm still going there. Uh, but Paul loved the games, in particular the Isthmian games is what they would call them. And in these Olympic-style games, for the winner, they would be brought before the governor there of Achaia, and they would receive a reward. A crown would be placed upon their head. Now, 
Here's the other thing, a little odd. These Isthmian Games, as well as the Olympic Games back in that day, uh, they competed completely in the nude. Yeah, like nothing. So there's a mental picture you need to try to scrub out of your brain. They had nothing on, and they're appearing before the governor. And I say that not to be glib, um, but the reality is for us, when we stand before Christ, you realize we're going to have absolutely nothing. We have no thing that we did in our own work, covering ourselves, trying to cover our flesh, making us look all gussied up. It's all going to be gone. Naked I came into this world, naked I'm going to depart. And the only thing we're going to have is what he places on our head. A reward, a crown upon us. And as he places that crown, here's the way we're going to react. It's not the way... uh, we would react in our flesh, you know, turn around to our buddies. Hey, man, got a reward. Check this out. Woo, right? That's, that's how we would react here. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10 says this. The 24 elders, they fell down uh, before him who sits upon the throne, and they worship him who lives forever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by and by your will they exist and were created. You see, you're not even going to be able to stand before him. He's going to place his crown upon your head for those who endure, continue to endure. But as he places that crown upon your head, you're going to take that off and you're going to throw it back down at his feet. Because he is so worthy. He is so worth it. So I want you to be encouraged in that as we endure through this life. Now, practically speaking, uh, please know that this also applies where the fire is going to come. We are going to have fire in our lives. And all the stuff that we try to make life all about, it is going to be burned up. Jesus loves you enough to let that happen. And if you've ever had the opportunity to sit next to a loved one while they take their last breath, what you know as you're holding their hand is, You're not thinking about the job or the house or the money or the car. All you can think about is that person, that precious loved one. Those are the things that last. That's what we get to carry into eternity. Others along with us. And so when we think about where do we put our investment, it's in people. That's what he's trying to communicate matter the absolute most. Now, as we continue here in verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And this word uh, temple that Paul uses, this is not the building proper. This is actually the word naos. And what it meant was the holy of holies, that specific place inside the temple where the very presence of God dwelt. And so he says, do you not know this is you? You're where the presence of God dwells, his kabod, the Shekinah glory has been sent to dwell within you individually. You are where the the actual holy of holies resides. And that is true for each and every one of you except Jesus. He resides, he comes in to take residence up with you. And what 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 says is that we are called then corporately as living stones, which I think is hilarious because you guys know a stone is dead, right? But by the power of the Spirit, we are living stones. We're a bunch of rockheads that God has 
molded and crafted and knocked off off those rough edges so that we can be assembled together to corporately be the place where His presence would dwell. And so each of us have got a specific purpose and a function we have been molded and shaped up to take on inside the body of Christ. Verse 17, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And so here in no uncertain terms, Paul says, look, if you defile the temple, God will destroy the, he will destroy him. Now the word destroy could also be translated diminished, meaning your effectiveness your power, your ability to learn will actually be diminished as you allow defilement to happen. Now, this seems super harsh, and you have to wonder, like, why would God use this kind of language? Why would Paul use this language to describe God's interaction with us? And, and the best answer I can come up with is, um, Jesus really, 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 really loves his bride. Really loves you, like a lot. So much so that he will not allow defilement to enter or to happen to his bride. He will defend his bride. He will take his bride in and clean her. Now for you moms uh, in the room, you know what it's like when your kids come in from outside. And it, it always happens when the floor has just been mopped, right? And then they come in there and they got their stinking dirty feet in my house! This is how Jesus feels. We come in from outside with our stinking, dirty feet into his house. And what we know from his interactions with Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, when he comes into contact with God, what does he say? But take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Later, a few books over to the right in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua comes into contact with God, and what does God say? Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 8. He's got his disciples gathered there in the room. And they are gathered together the night before Jesus would give his life for you and me. And what he is doing is he is now washing their feet. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That seems pretty serious. To which Peter responds, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head also. He's like, if you're going to wash me, wash me from head to toe, Lord. I want to be a part of you. Jesus responds and says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you, that last part referring to Judas Iscariot. What he's saying to Peter is, look, you're clean. You've been cleansed. You've been rendered undefiled. But your feet are dirty. Why? Because what part of our body comes into contact with the earth, with the world, but our feet? He's not telling Peter, don't go out and get your feet dirty. He's not telling us that. Why? Because all the unsafe people are out there. They're the ones that need to know Jesus. So he's saying, I know you're going to go out to where it's defiled. You're going to get dirty feet. But what I need you to do is before you come back into community with me, either by the world doing it to you or you doing it to yourself, I need you to clean your feet. I need you to, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, be washed in the water of the word. I need you to bathe yourself, wash up your feet 
that came into contact with the world around you so that you can be back in community with me, so that you can continue to grow. You can continue to learn and not be diminished, as it were. Now, back to the text. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the world knows the thoughts of the wise and they are futile. This is what the wisdom of the world brings. It's futility. What Paul's saying is cast off all those things you think you know and just come to the feet of Jesus. Let him start over again with you. Now, this particular quote is from Job chapter 5, verse 13. And, and if you've been reading on our daily Bible reading plan, we were just here a few days back. And what we found is Eliphaz is answering Job. Job, you might recall, has lost everything. Uh, his, and all his children have lost their life. All of his wealth, it's gone. Now his own health is completely evaporated. And he's sitting on a pile of ashes. And he is having one really, really hard day. And his friends, they come around him, and they, uh, they begin to give him great advice. Not. They begin to say, you know what, Job? You probably got some hidden sin in there. That's clearly what God's working out in you. You sin somewhere. They've got the wisdom of the world that they want to impart now upon Job. I share this to say, here's Job's response, by the way, which is one of the funniest in the book, a book that's not very funny. This is kind of funny. Job says, uh, no doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. Like, you're the people that God's given me. Wisdom is going to die right here with you guys. This is the lack of wisdom you actually have to share with me. Uh, it didn't make Job feel really great. That's what he was trying to communicate. What I wanted to say is when we think we have so much wisdom, uh, the next time you come across somebody who, like Job, is in a really tight spot, I want to encourage you to do what his friends did before they opened their yapper. They just sat and listened. Like More often than not, when people are hurting and they're in a deep, dark pit, they just want you to sit next to them. They, they want you to just listen to them cry out. And if you have anything to offer, the, the best thing I've ever heard, and I try to do this over and over again, is when someone shares it with me, I don't immediately go to my wisdom bank that I think is so great. I start off by saying, man, I'm sorry. I, I hurt for you. I feel for you. Have some empathy, you know? That, that's really what they want to hear most of the time is just be empathetic. And, and so often we get it in our mind. We want to share some deep spiritual truth. I'm getting ready to bring it from up on high. And they just want you to sit with them. <laughs> and so... For Job's friends, the issue was they brought the wisdom of the world. They thought what they were bringing were deep spiritual truths, but they missed the one that all the truth was about. It was all about Jesus and their Redeemer. As we head down the home stretch, verse 21, he says, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And so his call to them is stop elevating people. This is really their struggle. They had elevated men, their Bible teachers, above God. They had put them on a pedestal that was only there for Jesus. 
And this is a, a challenge for us in church because often we can take a person, a man or a woman, and we can elevate them in our minds to a position that, frankly, they just can't handle it. If you've been in church any length of time, you know how this feels, where someone that you thought you could trust, that you thought was in a certain spot, they let you down. And the reality is, while that hurts, uh, never let a man keep you from the man. That far too often what takes place in church is we get hurt, and then we walk away from the man. When it was never about the man, it was about a man who didn't deserve to be in that spot at all. And so if you follow people that you really look up to around uh, long enough, they will eventually disappoint you. Uh, for me, it, it'd take you about five minutes walking around with me, and you're like, yeah, he wasn't that great. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the reality of us in this flesh where we're battling this thing out. We're all working our salvation out with fear and trembling. But that's a spot for Jesus, you see. Having him elevated high above any man, putting our trust, our hope in him and him alone. Now, it doesn't let the rest of us off the hook, by the way, because when we get uh, just a few chapters from now in chapter 11, Paul's going to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That means uh, I am to strive for that as a leader. I am to look to someone who I do look up to in the faith. I just don't put them in a position of Jesus. And for every one of us, we should have someone that we're discipling in that way. Someone that looks to us as a Paul and that we are to look to them as a Timothy. But for every one of us, we need to all have that. We need to have a Paul, one who is discipling us, who is investing in us. And we all need to have a Timothy who we are uh, discipling ourselves. The Dead Sea is dead because it's a body of water that has an inflow with no outlet. That's why it's dead. So we need to be rivers, torrents of flowing water where we take in, but then we're able to exhale back out and invest in others. And so be challenged by that. Now as we wrap up, into overtime here, or the word of life, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. You see, the struggle for the Corinthians that Paul's addressing first and foremost is one of division. They begun to divide and exclude their brothers in Christ. They had let differences about their Bible teachers come in between them. And what Paul's encouraging them to think through is that, look, you're all Christ. They're all yours. And Christ is in God. One last place in Scripture to go. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 19. This is God giving Moses instruction for what the children are to do when they come into the promised land, which was a picture of us entering into the abundant Christian life. He says in verse 19, when you besiege a city, for a long time, while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. That's a weird spot to end. Here's the parallel. The spiritual truth behind that is that for us, as we've been given into the promised land, what God is saying is don't take the axe and just start wielding it around, chopping at everything you see. Because as we begin to wield the axe around, we might accidentally cut down the wrong tree. Don't cut down a tree that might bear fruit. Why would God tell the children of Israel that? Because how are you going to eat into the future? 
How are you or your children or your children's children going to feed on the land if you cut everything down? There's nothing there to consume. And so God gives them this as wisdom, and he's giving us the same thing. Be careful how you wield the axe, how quickly you want to take it to the root of that tree, because what you don't know by being divided and chopping at everything you see is which one of these trees will bear fruit. Maybe it's your kid and your grandkid that needs to eat of the fruit of that tree someday. And we are so quick as a church in the West to want to just whack at every single thing that we don't understand or doesn't see things exactly the way we do, or even worse, at one another. I don't agree with you, and I'm ready to take the axe right to you. And what you don't realize is that might be a tree that produces fruit for years and years to come. It might not look like it today, but someday it might be. And so be very careful and realize that we are of one body, one temple, one Jesus. This is who we're called to serve. And so, Father, we thank you. And I praise you, uh, first of all, for the graciousness of this group as I went over. But I thank you for the third chapter of First Corinthians, which is challenging in so many ways, Lord. Help us as we battle through the desire that our flesh has to be carnal, Lord. Help us inside our psyche to be those that are spiritually minded, that look first to the Spirit. Lord, help us to be a people that when our flesh cries out, we immediately think, is this what Jesus would have to do? Is this the direction he is calling me to go? Or is this a war that is taking place inside of me? And Father, as we interact with others that don't study the same way or learn the same way or worship the same way, help us to be slow to pull out the axe and start wielding it everywhere. And be much, much quicker to want to know more and to listen and to understand. Father, thank you for making us one body united under you, united by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, please help us live like it. In Jesus' name, amen.